really looking forward to having uh, our amazing panelists discuss the works um, they made for this um, exhibition, Moana Don't Cry. Um, I will just say very briefly that the work that you see in the Iris Fisher Gallery is a collaborative work that was commissioned by Tatui and presented mm -hmm. here for the first time. Um, it was a very, very long process of uh, making it with the support of Oakland University and AUT uh, for Alex and Natalie to make this work long term. They were devoted to the making of this work for over <coughs> a year and we were in conversation about the process um, along the way. So it was a very exciting thing to be involved with and I am very grateful to you for making me part of this process and letting me host your work. Um, and then, of course, we had Aroha Yates-Smith, who is a, an amazing um, scholar of uh, female Atua and in the Maori world, and uh, has lectured and written and speaks about the Atua, who came in to the project um, as, a, as another collaborator, layering it with something that I feel is was very necessary, there was hope and aroha, mm -hmm. love. And uh, <laughs> so we're very honored to have you as well and, and Kahu for your contribution to the process, including this work that you made for this reading room where we invite the public to interact with the Wayata that you composed and uh, learn the words and, uh, and speak te reo, sing te reo. So thank you all of you for being here. And I would like to um, open for you to read more um, tea to start the event. Thank you. Kia ora. Kia ora koutou katoa. I just also wish to acknowledge Graham Atkins, who is our collaborator, who is not here today because he's at home in Tikapa. Uh, on a rare occasion, where he actually is there, I think, today. And, uh, but he, he was, he's been extremely busy, so he's unable to join us here but we acknowledge the, his vision that we bring to this today too. So I'll pass this to you and start on um, 20. Can you see that okay kind for light? Um, did you want to stand over there or just be standing here? Oh, OK, we'll get up to you. And the way we're down to the bottom. Kanoho Wainui, Kanoho Yarangi. Puta mai ki wahora moana nui akiwa. Ka meringi kairaro ko parafirwa mea. Na moana nui e na moana roa e. Na tū i te repo, na tū i te wao. Na tū te hemorele nāna rangi tahuri. Nāna te whitau ka roia hai kaka, ka mahana iaha. E noho ana tangaroa i a tāwhiri nui orangi, ka whaia e tama, hai whāngai mō kahuroa. So this is from He Ori Ori, uh, written by uh, He Ori Ori uh, uh, Te Whakataha Ki Te Rangi. It's written by Tupai, who was the last priest of the house of Toki Toki uh, near Tūranga. And uh, this is 
was reported by Henare Te Kani Te Ua, and the words were given to Apirananata, and the translation is from Paitahurunui Jones, which I'll read now. So this is just a very small segment of a much longer motetea. We just wanted to share it because it's pivotal in how we came to be uh, understanding the work that we're doing. The mighty waters did abide with the sky father, and unto them was born the great ocean of Kiwa. Poured down here below was the muddy soil of Mother Earth. Begotten too by the mighty ocean, were the open seas, the oozy swamp, the oozy forest swamp. Tu Tehemorere begat Rangi Tahuri. She grew the flax from which, the, which cloaks were woven that now keep me warm. Tangaroa took unto himself Tafari Nui Orangi, and food was sought, O son, for the shoals of fish of Kahuroa. And so this motetea was my first introduction to understanding uh, this figure of uh, what here it says, muddy soil of Mother Earth, Parafenoa Mea, and through that led me to, uh, I knew that Aroha had written on, uh, on Ato Wahine, and then talked to Kahurangi Araki, who joined us at AUT, and asked is there anything that your mother has written that I could access and found that indeed she had written extensively on Parafino Mea. So I'm going to hand over to Aroha now to elaborate. Sure. Um, well, I'm going to ask Kahu to help me remember certain things. <laughs> Well, you can hear me singing. <laughs> <laughs> the mystic tune is down, I've shut the door. It's a bit noisy. But, um, yes, yeah, so just listening to those words, um, in this instance I was reflecting on the way in which um, Tāne Mahuta of the forest, uh, Kamoya Tāne Iahinetu Parimona, in other words, our mountain um, female, and um, from them, um, came Parafenwamea mm-hmm. and um, I picture in my mind Parafenwamea as coming as being really fine silt now behind you you'll see um, <coughs> an image of our puna at um, Te Awahau um, in Rotorua near Nongotaha in Rotorua um, and, and the silt if you look at certain images, or if any of you have been to springs like this, you'll see very fine grains of the sort of a silvery, grey, white um, deposit bubbling up. It's just absolutely beautiful to watch. Uh, in contrast, then, you see Parafenwamea as it's depicted horrendously um, mm-hmm. as this muddy sludge which carries down. Um, or the debris of Tane Mahuta. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was a reminder of, our, of what we do when we try to interfere with Mother Nature, mm-hmm. with Papatuanuku, with Tane Mahuta of the Nahiri, and in this case, um, Parafenumea. So Parafenumea um, tra- changes from something which is really 
incredibly beautiful and um, and and is um, sustainable to something which um, becomes a raging torrent of mud and silt and everything else that uh, cascades down and therefore pollutes Hinemona and therefore Te Mona Nuiakiwa. So um, our whakapapa in Māori, um, as I've just explained, um, gives us a, a real sense of to whom we belong. Mm. Right? We belong to Papa Tuanuku and Ranginui, our Sky Father. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us as descendants of, of Hine and Tane and Papa and Rangi and so on to ensure that we protect our ancestors in the form of Wai, in the form of Manu and, um, and birds, trees, anything that we protect them. So um, that's a start. I'll <laughs> 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 probably run out of moods at the moment. Could you talk a little bit more? Because my, when I first read that Mortanta, it was the muddy soil of Mother Earth, which is obviously Payne Jones's translation. Yes. And then with more research into Whakapapa, saw that there were many other forms that Parafenua Mia takes, and you've described one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really interested in that also that she's moving towards Tangaroa. Could you yes. explain her Whakapapa connection with Tangaroa? Yes, yeah. well, so you have... Um, oh, I might get this wrong now. So um, you have Parafenua Mia and... Well, actually, I have to go back to the Now <laughs> 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 She comes up as a um, as a puna, as a spring. Mm-hmm. So there you got um, put a, um, you've got Timona Nyakiwa, right? Um, and so you you get the sense of um, the waves coming in and the natural water flowing in, and that's that's how our our ancestors brilliantly described them as a whakapapa. So it, it's it's a way in I which in which I believe our elders passed down. Um, this information, partly for our young people, partly too perhaps to probably to remind us as adults what is really important in this world. And they would never have known five or six hundred years ago that uh, we'd be in a position now, probably like we are, with modern computers and sitting in houses and buildings like this and, and having the kinds of problems that we currently do have. But I, I do think it's um, we can learn so much from what our ancestors collectively have handed down through Wayata, through Whakapapa, um, mm-hmm. through knowledge of, of the ancients. And that's why it's really important that we share it here and that we then go home, wherever you are from, whatever schools you're associated with, community programs, etc., etc., and help um, educate people so that we can make a difference. Um, yeah, it's probably gone off on a tangent, but you know, it's me. We were thinking about the about the uh, the female atua mm-hmm. and your work on that and how you came to that, to finding out about other female atua and also part of female as part of that research. You could just talk a little bit more on that, please. 
Um, well, that goes back quite a way. <laughs> well, actually, it goes back to when I, as a young girl, um, was taken out to um, to what is now known as Te Puya, but it was out to Whakarewiriwa, and I learned mm. to do tāniko work, and um, and then and pew pew, and then later on went on to do kurawai and so on. At, when I was at the university level, I was at university, and that became part of my um, PhD. That's what I wrote about for my PhD. So um, I became aware, very much aware of of our um, sacred feminine in terms of weaving and so on, and of course childbirth, because Hanetewi was also goddess of childbirth. And I think through that and just spending a lot of time with our elders, especially with weaving, you learn to look after the land and the harakiki and it just becomes very much a part of what you do. And particularly when you live next to um, Rotorua, mm-hmm. Lake Rotorua, um, I remember going as an AFS student um, up into North America and... Um, and hearing that there were lakes that were dying. And I thought, this is just shocking. How did this possibly happen? I went back to Rotorua, and only then did I realise, actually, we've lived with a polluted lake for a long time. I haven't been able to swim in my, uh, our lake since I was a little girl. But you don't, you get so used to it, you don't actually see it. So it wasn't until I went overseas and discovered that that I came back that this was shameful. So I guess at one level I was influenced at many different levels. And of course learning the real at Whariwana Mawaikato and then going on to um, write my Masters in Māori about, um, and my Masters thesis about Ngamahia Hene Te Iwi was so as the, the weaving um, describing the weaving process and um, the realm of whare, of Hinete Iwiwa. So Hinete Iwiwa isn't only the Atua Wahine goddess of, of childbirth and so on, she's also the, the deity pertaining to, one of the deities pertaining to weaving. Uh, and I guess it kind of, that sensitivity was embedded in me through my various um, whānau members, particularly my elders, then later on my teachers um, mm-hmm. at the Whariwana or Waikato. Mm-hmm. So this really it's links really beautifully with the Mōtēate, with the Oriori, that it's the, uh, after the Uzi, you know, the Uzi swamps, mm-hmm. the Terepo, that the, uh, the Fito is born, right. yeah. and the Flax and the Harakeke, uh, the, you know, um, the way, you know, talks about weaving there mm. and that all there, there, so it just really connects that. Yeah. I've done picking that up. You also went out studying in Hawaii, right? So yes. you had the similar you in that video you were able to break down the linguistic similarities with um, yeah. That's right. So um <coughs> I had learnt about Parafenua Mea, but of course I went to Hawaii and they have Pele Honua Mea over there. We usually just called her Pele, you know. And then one day um, I was back here in Aotearoa and I was writing something about Parafenua Mea. And I think I looked up one of the dictionaries. I don't remember which dictionary it was. comparative. Yeah, and it came up with um, that. Mea was an ancient term for red. 
So if you're interested, check that out. And because we just think of mere as thing, you know, but mere is actually an ancient word for, um, for red, in which case that was immediately um, enabled me to associate it with our Hawaiian cousins, Kanaka Māori cousins, Tuakana, and, um, and Pele Honua Mea. So Pele is the equivalent of para, Honua mm-hmm. is Fenua, and Mea is Mea. <laughs> but for us, it isn't just thing, it also means it is an ancient term for red. So I felt um, within our language was embedded that link between us and our Kanaka Māori um, tuakana, our, elder, our um, older brothers and sisters of, of Hawaii, which I believe uh, Big Island is one of our Hawaii, possibly Hawaii Nui. So these links that you'll find as you travel around the Munanuyaki were uh, incredible. Mm-hmm. And this was just one of the, the things that I found um, made sense. And you'd probably find them that have found the same thing. But, um, yeah, so what else is there? That's just, on that tangent, <coughs> that's making me think of um, when we were first filming these videos, um, within days beforehand, Mona Kia, and stuff around Mona Kia had really come to a climax. Um, and so we had a lot of whānau that we'd seen the week prior at the NISA conference, who then the following week had to go straight into that action mode and being there for the moment. So that's where we got the name from for our mahi. Um, the Tangi Aroha was Natalie Alex's idea. That was quite a nice play on words. But um, Mamura Cry was a roof off this exhibition name because mum was, it was um, quite upsetting. And I guess it's hard as well when you have to decide what you cut and what you include in the video because you can't say one type of knowledge is more important than another. But all that corridor is still there somewhere on my hard drive. But <laughs> you were really upset, oh, yeah. and we were talking about Monokia a lot. And in the video, you're wearing poor cases and hearing. Yeah, the first time I took it off today because I thought I should wear my um, Mix it up. Yeah. <laughs> But usually, I um, yeah, poor before she headed home to Hawaii after one of our um, our conferences and. Um, I raced up with one of my CDs for her and she just turned around and um, gave me her, um, her shawl and, um, and a beautiful set of the earrings. And she just took the earrings off that she was wearing. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but it is a little moment and it's representative of the moment. Yeah, it's very precious. And so you have presented on Parafenua Mea and Pele Honua Mea in Hawaii in March. Uh, what yeah. was the name of the conference kahu that you went to? Uh, Hiro Honua. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that was when I asked Kahu how could I access any of uh, Aroha's writing on Parafenua Mea. She just happened to have it right there by her just and said, here it is right here. And it was one of those incredible serendipitous moments. <laughs> And Alex had an exhibition at the same time down at uh, Dunedin Public Art Gallery and they'd asked whether there was a, there was a window, an opportunity to do a window work for, for that gallery. And so uh, when I read through the paper from Aroha, the last section is the waiata 
that she composed that we've just heard part of. And so we're like, would Araka like to sing this one? <laughs> because it connects to this. So, so Kahu just did a <coughs> phone video, and I took it down to Alex at the edit suite down at Elim, and I snow sent it the night before and said, watch this. So I go down there at about eight in the morning, might be seven in the morning, and Alex is bawling her eyes out. <laughs> Listen, having listened to the Waiato with our, our footage, and that was really that moment of confirmation that this was going to be a really important connection to bring about. And so that's when, and then Kahu came up with the idea to use it because it's a window work, this educational opportunity to, um, to create the karaoke connection. Can you just speak a little bit about that? This is what this is about here. And then we can hand it back to uh, some of the points you want to raise then. Yeah? Um, so the irony of it all is, is that mum's composed these waita, but I really don't like to sing. And I congratulated her when she was about nine years old. I said, Danny, you've got the most beautiful voice. Well, then that was. <laughs> <laughs> so the only time I like singing um, is at karaoke. It's been a great time. It's an amazing night. So I was like, well, I, why don't I combine the two? Is that why you did that? As a means to like, visually communicate the wiser through the window space that we had, but also, but also for me to learn the wiser as well, so I can kind of sing along. It's in a format that's maybe less scary for me. After hours of editing and listening to it, I can um, sing along with it by the end. But that's where the idea of um, karaoke came from as an educational format. And so the intergenerational knowledge exchange mm-hmm. in a way to, to make that accessible. And then once we started working on that, we just really needed to take it further. That just felt like just such a beginning. But on what that bigger thing is, is of course the video work. And so I think you have some questions for us, Gabriel. <laughs> yes, uh, well, more than questions, I just remember that the first work I saw of yours, Natalie, was um, the work that you did on the river. I brought river that was carrying the sediment and that was the beginning of this process that is still mm. being actioned by making more work and researching more and spending more time in the Finwa and trying to um, tease out all the um, developments of that drama that is unfolding in this part of the country. Um, so I was very impressed by the, the dimension of the disaster. That's how I can frame it and forgive my, my traumatic way of putting it. I'm Latin American, I'm dramatic. But uh, it is, for me, it is uh, a, a slow tragedy. And talking to you and listening to uh, Grams, I have to say, you know, Grams uh, is very, very much missed today because he was. He's the kaitiaki, he's the person as a, as a forest, forestry ranger and a person who lives in the, in the land who has been observing these changes for a long time. And it was his idea initially, I, I believe, that it should be filmed to provide a, a visual record of what is happening with the sedimentation, the deforestation, creating this slow tragedy. So when, when you told me... Um, about the development towards what happens when this reaches the sea, and that you were working at a major project around that. I thought, well, let's, let's see how that, 
that pans out. When you commission work, it's an act of faith. For months, I couldn't see any footage. Uh, I completely trust, and I love that kind of leap of faith where you say, well, I don't know what's going to be, but I trust. It's fine. And it was actually quite amazing to talk to you in the, in the process. I wanted you perhaps to tease out the different steps, the, 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 the moments of acknowledgement and, and compassion that you might have felt for the land in order to give it a voice in the images. Well, so, uh, so just to give a little bit of background for those who are less familiar with what the bigger corridor is that yeah. we're having here, is this is about the Waiapu River, and the Waiapu River carries one of the highest sediment loads of any river in the world. Now my grandfather grew up at the mouth of the Waipu River, he grew up at a little place called Port Awanui that was at that time, you know, a, a kind of a central, uh, central place for people to come and go from the coast, with most of the travel being coastal travel on steamer ships during the time. He was born 1904, just to give you a kind of a sense mm -hmm. of when he was living there. And so he lived to 96, so I was really fortunate to be really uh, schooled by him on our, on our whakapapa, mm -hmm. our relationship to whenua. And he carried on, his, uh, his mother, uh, my great-grandmother, May um, Parapuito, Mabel Boyd, who became Mabel Hughes, she spent many years uh, in the Māori land courts ensuring that she succeeded her mother's land and her mother, mm -hmm. her grandmother before her. So we have a matrilineal line of our whakapapa relationship to the point where um, my grandfather took over the shares for the Hughes whānau or inheriting those, uh, those responsibilities to that mm -hmm. whenua. And in the last 10 years of his life after my grandmother passed away, I would take him back to the coast and he would tell me stories and explain how life was when he was there and also what, uh, what needed to be, you know, a lot about what needed to be done to look after the land. So I had a reasonably romantic view, I have to say, of when mm -hmm. I first started going back to our whenua, to Port Awanui. It was, you know, this sort of long-lost connection. Well, it was, the, the loss, I just should explain, is that my mother wasn't brought up there. My mother was brought up in Nuhaka, to all the Nuhaka people in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that, you know, that's another, that's been a really enriching connection in our, in our life as well, our Nuhaka connections. And Grandad had the... Uh, connection to the coast of course so my mum and her brothers didn't have that time growing up there so this was my grandfather's memory and the stories we'd hear and when I first went back for Tangi when I, to Te Horo when I was um, 16 was my first kind of return there and Port Awanui lay just beyond Te Horo and it was this you know, mystical place so when I started camping there after Grandad passed away to really understand my responsibilities to our whenua as I became a trustee was this kind of crashing realisation, thanks to Graham Atkins, that all was not as it appeared. And he'd point to this plume, he would point to that plume of sediment coming up the river mouth and he'd just say, look at that. And then he'd say, where do you think it comes from? And he would make the connection and we began to understand that the river had been much narrower at one point. Uh, the old people talk about being able to call across the river. The image right behind you right now actually, as you can see some of the kind of the remnants of paddocks out into the, into the middle of the... Um, so those green bits, that's where the paddocks went right out to. <coughs> so the paddocks used to go right out to there and so um, 
the you know there's a massive loss of land and that land ends up in the sea. That land smothers everything that it, as it goes. And then Alex started coming camping with us and went off on an adventure with Graham. Is it how many years ago? Is that 2007? Oh, before, before 2008. Yeah, yeah. And ended up going on a hunting expedition with Graham <laughs> and made a little film called Swine Fever. And now over to you, Alex. What happened on the hunting trip? Yeah, so um, I'll just say as well, so I'm, I'm quite a physical person, so and our friendship sort of started and that invited me to go down to Whānau land as part of their returns home, so I sort of was down just hanging out, but in that sort of, um, I've been a surfer and competed surfing, and for my, my home place is um, Ireland, and then we immigrated here, and to um, frame up that, um, Marketee Atkins, who's Graham Atkins wife, she sort of commented that, or how I see myself as, drift, as driftwood, mm-hmm. um, and, um, but so since the the driftwood I'm here now. <laughs> um, so yeah, this one summer we just were sort of like that, that kind of way of being in land and water um, and hunting and being physical. Like, so I was, you know, wanted to go hunting with Graham or he was going and just sort of like was scooping up anybody around that wanted to go up and give a bit of a hand. And so we went up and I'd worked on farms and things as part of my sort of way of paying my way through art school. And we went up um, right into the quite a high reach in, on the side edge of Hikurangi and did our days hunting and um, made my notes and document you know of that process. And it was really family because um, Kimura Aitkins, his daughter, was hunting at age 11 and was really pretty expert with him, supporting and the unpacking and talking to one another about the hunting and that they have a really cool relationship. They're really physical and the knowledge is all to come together. Did she bags on her feet too? Oh yeah, you know, like the sneaky tricks, getting your feet into gummies and they'll bring bags into your socks and all that. And so, um, so we're on that co-paper, but then on the way down after the day, um, up the, uh, we're coming down the hill and Graham just sort of switched off the quad bike on the way down. We're coasting down one of these farm tracks and he just sort of then stopped the bike and he goes, oh, look over there. And it was that, it was the blue slip, what he was pointing to. And he just, he goes, I can sort of still remember the phrase. He was like, that's craters of the moon over there. They were just staring at him. I was like, what is that? And I also, um, in my time in, in farms um, on the Rangitaka River, it was four years working there. There's a lot of slips around that area, but this was like a whole, mm-hmm. in terms of what I had seen, and I'd seen big slips, it was sort of like, what sort of scale is that at? And then sort of we went down, carried on, I cut the film, and that was the Wairua Māori film for something, about 2008. And then it's like it's been a little echo of thought, like yeah, since that time. But so um, Nat had, hadn't been up in that bit of the reach and had done all this work with their grandfather down and on the lower reaches. And it was sort of like this connection of feeling like a, um, there was there's this instance that you can understand in terms of the volume, the scale of it, and becoming quite interested to support what Natalie and Graham started to be talking about. And um, the mind-blowing volume of it, because we were on a opposite sort of ridge, eh, and it was yeah. um, sort and of, the, yeah. And I think it was the moment when Graham started talking about how he used to be down in the river valley looking up to a little flat where a house stood, and then realising that house was now buried up to its eaves in sediment, and that house belonged to Barton, 
for whom the gully was now named, Barton's Gully. Mm. And then he said that Barton was, it was a ballot farm block. And we didn't understand enough about ballot farm blocks to really know then. So further research found out that they were about the soldiers' re return of the ballot farms. Mm. And so the return servicemen, the Pākehā return servicemen, were given land that they had a little connection to. But there were government policies of the day that said that every tree needed to be cut down, and this was part of the, uh, sort of the policies that were driving it. And those kinds of policies we still are countering today. And so now we're uh, now 100 years on, we realised that we had an opportunity to film, and with Gabriella's commission, became the impetus to really say, right, this is our opportunity to get in and film that. I'd filmed the exhibition Gabriella's referring to, I'd used drone footage two years ago for an exhibition on, on, um, from the very beginning of the Waipu River proper, where the Tapawairoa River and the Pa River join, and it goes down and becomes Waipu, just above the bridge, above at uh, Rotoria, for all the um, coasties in the house. <laughs> and so that's the, you know, the becomes the Waipu proper. So I'd filmed from that segment down to the river mouth, and I'd used a motea that described a journey down there by a young man, Pahoi, who is one of our whanaunga, our distant tikuna. And so this became an opportunity to look further back up and say, right, well, where does this, still, we're not at the source of this erosion yet. We've got to go back up and look at this. So Graham um, had this idea, and he had this, he had this vision of being in the kind of the craters of the moon with, a, with aerial footage of, of starting with him physically or a person and the drone getting higher and higher and higher until the figure disappears, until that person disappears and the, drone, and the, and the space of the slip is still in view because of the scale of it. Now we didn't get to do that because we did have weather constraints when we did go and shoot. We had um, we still got it on our shot list, but we did get to able to fly the drone in and get the footage we've got here. But Graham really had this idea that to visualise this, you've got to see something in terms of the human scale and then the scale of the problem. And he he was also really clear that the lowland living. And um, the farmers and people there d couldn't see uh, oftentimes what's happening in the upper reaches. So there was a oh, various yeah, kinds of gates, break. Eh? Yeah, yeah. So there's access. Um, so some some people are up there like hunting. The hunters yeah, know all about yeah, it, yeah. but it's not part of the broad discussion. And so he was interested in the link that had been broken and what to do about. Um, can't see what's upstream and why that's happening and all the consequences that are downstream. And so when I think Gabriella was sort of talking about Moana don't cry, the question about Moana became really linked for us the other way around where it's like, but what about Papatonuku in relation to Moana? It, always, it seems always the last part of understanding something in that, um, what often the way it is in art and then can be that outward looking thing. But yeah, and I think and then Parafeno Mea then becoming uh, this, you know, this ancient way of understanding the link from Hinitu Parimaunga up in the mountains right down to Tangaroa and producing Hinemuana, but that this was a relationship that no longer was the way it was when uh, those those audi were written or those uh, those were being uh, were being passed down. And so with Graham's vision in mind, we had. So I've benefited for many, many years with Graham's uh, very patient advice and very patient explaining over and over again things around the, uh, you know, what's happening. And in 
you know, I'm so visual and until I see it, I can't really fully understand it. And so I wanted to visualise it and I wanted other people to see what we were visualising. And we wanted to show, share that so Graham can also show people at home who are, um, know, you know, whose lives are most, most affected by this. This is, you know, one of the places where this comes from. So we've been, you know, really fortunate to have that guidance. So with, with this work then we thought this was a way to really create this, show the cycle of life as well, that these are, that these are <coughs> hills and maunga that have been pushed up out of the ocean not that long ago mm. in mm. geological time. And we were reading geomorphology, well I was reading geomorphology reports and find that there were uh, scientists who were writing a lot about this, but again the visual, how do we visualise it, how do we explain the slow catastrophe as Rob Nixon calls it, how do we show that and make sense of it? How do we show people a hundred years from now what it's like now? And I mention the hundred years because we've signed the Waipu Kōkuhuhu Agreement where we want to repair and restore our river and the riverine environment over a hundred year period. We have a commitment to that. And I wanted this way that we could show people this is where we've come from. But there's a sort of an impasse in a sense in terms of this particular gully because of the state of it. It is quite amazing to see people going to the gallery and, and sitting there and being prepared to stay and understand the, the magnitude of it. I mean, it is an incredibly rich um, work in terms of its technical um, presentation, but also how it, it envelops the, the audience because there's these four projections that are linked, uh, they are confronting each other, they are creating this space in between for people to feel the connection. For me, what is very poetic and at the same time very educational, which is quite an amazing virtue of you, and I want to mm -hmm. congratulate you for putting these two elements together, is that there is this micro view of the rocks being broken, the, the soil being broken with the hands because it's so dry and it cannot hold on to life anymore and that is the small the small things that we can see but then the large picture that we can't see that has taken us all the way to that moment to that factor and in the same way I can see the planet in you know panoramic and micro this is a very localized tragedy but the whole planet is undergoing this. This, mm -hmm. well, no, one tree is not worth the same as a blade of, what is the, the, the mention that you say from the time One of blade of grass with two trees. One blade of grass is not worth it's with, yeah, two trees. So we're cutting down trees. trees. So, you know, and the fact that there's still deforestation going on in such an, uh, you know, in such an aggressive way all along, all around, you know. I come from South America, I'm seeing the whole Amazon disappear mm -hmm. under our eyes. There's not even more reporting of it. It's like it's over. It's not over. Deforestation happened there at an incredible scale, very fast, in order to, you know, occupy the land with agribusiness. It's as simple as that. You know, there were there were regulations to stop that from, prevent that from happening. So a crazy president decided, well, let's go and burn it. And this is happening in so many parts of the world. So, again, going from the panoramic to the localized from the from the the, the the perspective of seeing the whole thing with the drones that allow us this technology allows us to see things from that distance and, and perceive the scale of it mm -hmm. and at the same time the small details of it 
I think that that is, is incredibly educational, but at the same time very compelling. And my, my only question at this point is what can we do? As we know all this, as humans, all of us, learning this, listening to the media, you know, hearing the news about what, the degradation of nature, what is that we can do proactively to create a, a future for us as humans? Just, just before we get to that, I just did want to point out a couple of sort of things about the process that we haven't talked about. And one is that Alex realised that by putting the drone right, was well, sending the drone right up into the gully, that the drone was actually where a hillside used to be. It was in the air where Papatūnuku would have been. Mm. So it's transgressions or it's the unnerving nature of this whole situation. In terms of the camera eye, took a lot of thinking and consideration about that absence of Papatūnuku there and then mm. its presence down now on the bed in the mouth, eh? Like, yeah, so there's a lot of very yeah. hard things to think about in terms of... And so thinking yeah. about the volume of how those, in that airspace and how could we put this, how, you know, using this technology to be in there, but also at the end of our second day up, up the river there, and yeah, it is three, uh, three gates to go through this locked access, so Graham mm -hmm. you know, did all the permissions and everything for all of that. And um, with the, at the end of the day, there was, he'd, he and Sid Hyinga had gone off hunting, and um, there's a hunting thing here. They call it hunting. <laughs> and Sam Britton, who did the incredible drone footage, and we really want, want to acknowledge his expertise, he's uh, the uh, son of John Britton, for those of you who know the motorcycle inventor, so he's got an incredible mind <coughs> technology. Mm. And so he was doing some finishing shots, and Alex and I were poking around with, this, with the stills camera and noticing that the rocks were um, had, a, had a, a contained form that you don't see anywhere further down because by the time they've moved down the river, they've fallen apart. Mm. And so it was only at the bottom of the slip that these particular mm. rock forms are visible. And it was after spending some time there, we did some a few test shots and thought, right, we've got to come back and do this and actually have Graham and potentially his daughters in the future um, breaking, you know, just showing us those rocks and showing us that, that much more intimate connection and understanding. And it's really as well. what you were talking about too, like the use of the land, that the European imposition of their take on pastoralism, the, the expression of it was so diabolical because the land was so young. And so what you see with those rocks <coughs> is that the, the particular part on the gully fan where it just, it comes out of the hill, it rolls down, it might be a rock that still has a rock sort of shaped form, and then in the sun it, it cracks and it's sitting in a geometric sharded sort of shape, but you touch it and it just falls apart in your hands. It has the structure is so weak, and that's what you're seeing like on the way in there on the on that work as Grand just picks up one after another and they're just breaking his hands, and then over time it turns into then the putter. And it's it's been such a contemplation about Parafeno on the and your nature. Like, um, and I call it the of rocks and their relationship. So they've got an intimate relationship. So I guess to, follow, to pick up then on your question of what can we do, I think one of the first things that we really want to do is pay attention to Mataranga Māori, mm -hmm. to really centre Māori knowledge as an intimate understanding and realise that that motetea or oriori carries a lot of close you know, understandings born of close observances. 
understanding is born out of an intimate relationship with Finua, with Moana, with, uh, the, with Tani Mahuta, with all of those, those knowledge spaces and really thinking through how do we, how do we re-centre our knowledge and understanding that those are, those are scientific understandings, those are deeply held knowledges. Mm. What happens if we shifted our policy making into a Maori, and centred a Maori, localised Maori understanding. And I'm not talking pan Maori all over the country, that each area has the Mataranga specific to that place. And that if those, the people who held that knowledge were making the decisions for that place, I think we'd be in a very different space now. So that's the way forward I see. Your thoughts on that? I, I think we need, need to be having these sorts of discussions within the whānau um, and each of us will have um, either a piece of land or whānau, iwi land um, and to be aware of that, the, the impact that um, all these things are having on either the whenua, the way and the, the home, the home and therefore all of Ngā Uri or, or Hineotāni so and of Papa Tuanuku, so all the descendants. If you think of all the descendants of Rangi and Papa um, and the importance of looking after them, then we're actually talking about the entire um, environment around us. Um, I wrote down a few ideas in case I forgot. Um, I think um, we need to teach our young, and, and, and I think at both Kohanga Reo and kindergarten levels, they're doing that quite well. Um, it is sort of a hands-on process, and uh, then I think that thereafter, each level of our education system, both formally and informally, needs to be saturated with the sort of understanding of um, of our belonging to Papatuanuku and and um, Ranginui, uh, Earth Mother, Sky Father, in whatever way we perceive the entity, therefore nature, um, and and um, ensuring that from our young to our old, the old people, uh, many of the old people will be, will have had the experiences that we have. Others might have grown up in the city and may not have had that experience, but um, igniting that passion within each individual and therefore the collective to, to really make a difference. And that if, if we're finding that it isn't, we aren't, it isn't working, that we could quickly modify the situation so that we can improve it. Mm. Uh, and I, uh, in the end, when I feel really desperate, I think, that's right. Um, we'll just kill ourselves off. Mm. And we deserve it at one level. Mm. But the, 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 um, the greatest dilemma and sin that we, we, could, we could be guilty of is taking all of other nature with us. Mm. And it may take another million, two million years, whatever length of time it takes. But Papa Tuanuku is actually going to survive. Mm. Provided we don't blow the planet out of space, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> so Papa Tuanuku will survive. Ranginui is going to survive. But what we've got to stop doing is polluting mm. both Papa Tuanuku and I also think we've got to stop trying to, um, I don't even want us to be 
uh, flying our satellites, um, not satellites, um, spaceships into the nether, nether regions of space. I don't want that anymore. Because guess what happens? We all know that they send off their rockets and they drop this and they drop that. So now how many bits and pieces of junk are floating around there ready to be bumping into others? In other words, we've already started polluting um, other planets and, and Ranginui himself in general. And I just think that's very wrong. That's my business. Terribly negative. I just saw what you also made a note that you use Facebook, so yeah, you got a yeah. Facebook cleaner. So, well, you know, I, I stopped teaching up at university years ago, and yes, I am trying to finish writing this book about my goddesses, but um, in the meantime, I go around and I give talks. But Facebook is one way in which I can, I can make comments and I can educate or just give my own idea about something. If someone thinks it's a good idea, they'll follow it. And if they don't, they'll just won't bother, and that's fine. But it's, it's a way in which I can share my voice, mm-hmm. as opposed to standing in front of a, a, a classroom of students, which I no longer do, unless I'm asked to give a lecture. <coughs> so, you know, we can, each of us, do this in our own minuscule way, but it can make a difference. And for me, talking about the importance of looking up, uh, um, understanding that concept of Atua Wahine, Atua Tāne, Ranginu and Papatua Nupu and so on, and the importance of us um, respecting them and honouring them and all that we do, we can't ask to do much more than that. And if we can embed that in our young children's minds from a very early age, not to give them a sense of guilt, not certainly not that, but I don't want them to feel guilty for what they've inherited. <laughs> but indeed, to um, to express aroha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, aroha. Can I just add that I think healing and visibility are the two things that I think are really important. So one of the things that what we are trying to do is make visible things that are out of the public view that very few people know about. Make visible things that are. Uh, not so commonly known, even by people who might be living, as we said, in the lower reaches of the river, experiencing the impact of that. And then the next stage is the healing. And when we talk with our Koroa uh, and uh, what to mention here, Moriku uh, Timaro, Uncle Boise Timaro, who has talked to me extensively about the Uzi swamps, about the, you know, the, those. Uh, those offspring of Wainui and and Rangi and those that emergence of the of the importance of swamps and the importance of Punawai, and we've lost a, one of our major swamps. We lost because of the um, of this of Cyclone Bola, and so we lost a really really important swamp. And so we have to heal our other smaller swamps, and we have to be listening. And I've been talking to to, to Matt Benita here, who's uh, our, one of our tikapa whānau as well about healing the whenua through listening to the voice of the whenua. So we've been having some passionate conversations about listening to the reo of Papatūnuku in the different places and it might be something Matt might want to talk about a little bit in the question time, up to you. But one of the things we've talked about with Uncle Boyce is how do we heal the small places as well? What can we manage? We can manage a punawai. We can manage to plant around a punawai. We can return the tuna to every puna. 
we can do the things at a smaller scale that when the big problem feels so overwhelming, let's start with what we can manage. And that can be the healing in ourselves, that heal our relationship with the whenua, heal our relationship with those places and through caring for Papatunuku and uh, all of the offspring of, uh, of Wainui, Rangi and Papatunuku. Did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, Alexa, Carl, would you like to add anything before we ask you to contribute or ask questions? I think one, one struggle that I had was about Parafenua Mea, how subtle she is in people's minds and in my own journey of learning. So if you think of Wananui um, Akua here the, and where the waves and the coast and you have Parafenua Mea's subtlety and sediment and the thing you were talking about, about the not, I spent a lot of time around the Manawatu River, which was highly sedimented, mm. where I grew up then once we moved from Ireland. And then what do you do, what kind of work might need to be done in the creative visual space to, to go into and unfold and make different kinds of spaces for this really quite subtle, although it looks like a huge problem that's visualised now, it was like we were standing really from zero, and your work was unpacking, unpacking, and the subtlety of Parapenua Mere was sort of, and you know, gaining strength, and it just seemed really important. But also, she seemed really under, undernourished in terms of all around, and, and any of the art forms that I'd come in contact with. And so it was a really new um, kind of thing. I think that was part of the the tears was when I, they came together was feeling that the conditions were so extreme oh, in the Waipu, so it's a global case, as you've heard, like as in how much sediment is going out, it's .003 of the entire global sediment load in the Wananui, main, the whole connected ocean systems of the world, so it is a mind-opening amount of para that is coming from those East Coast rivers, yeah. and it, it, it just, it's almost a incomprehensible and yet the minutiae as well so yeah. I think that, that scholarship just seems so important. And I also think that what the the, re, the, the Waiata resonated so powerfully with us because your voice is healing mm-hmm. yeah. you know and it's a healing vibrational okay. sound that you do mm-hmm. you know, that when you were singing it was like we're dealing with this you know the, the horrors of the situation but when we you know when we hear you sing it's there's a this beautiful healing vibrational energy that felt that that's the, the natural state of Parafenua Mea, that's how that relationship should be, this beautiful, soothing love story between you know, her moving down and joining Tangaroa, and yet uh, this relationship is dysfunctional with the Waiapu, and yet you're, you're bringing healing to it. Well, it's interesting you talk about um, that sense of healing, because that is a core ukulele uh, when I, I actually did my PhD and it was meant to be about um, lots of the Aotearoa from all around the Mononuiakewa. So I went to Hawaii on sabbatical and I believe I had to go back to Hawaii, that particular Hawaii first up and we found this kua, um, it's one of, it's um, one of the last ukulele to be made by this very famous Hawaiian ukulele maker. So you've heard the sound, that's not because I'm a good ukulele player, it's because no matter how bad you are, that's going to make the sound good. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately that's what 
hopefully I didn't bring along today. But, um, and so I look at that, and I've only just thought about this. That was once uh, a rākau, a koa, a tūwana, a tenahere, you know, mm-hmm. on, on one of our Hawaii um, islands, ngā moku, ngā motu, or Hawaii aki. So, um, and I think it's also the, the tune, the sound, rather, of it, um, that creates a healing space. However, um, what was I going to say? But, um, You're talking about healing. Healing. Yeah, so um, part of it is the actual tune. The tune just came to me. But um, it's also the ukulele, I think, that brings a tone. It's a particular tonal quality that brings healing as well. Mm. And that's of tāne mm. and hini. <laughs> There other things I was going to say, but didn't. Sure. Mm. Um, and Carol, would you like to add some perspective of the future? Yeah, what to add? <laughs> on top of that. Um, so, can you go more future here? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just thinking about Monokua and how it's not actually separating entity, but one who joins so many of us. And that's why I think you were so moved by what's happening in Monokua, for one instance. Mm-hmm. Because it is, these are our cousins that are going through this, their mana, our mana. Um, and even what you see in this video in here, inside this room, is that there are so many experiences of Timona and Niakiwa, and they're not, however, it may be divided by the Pacific or Micronesia, all of that. I think the relationships kind of transcend that, and you can see that in our tattooing, you can see that in. The real, um, you can see that in the extensive voyaging traditions that we have. Mm. Those relationships have always been there. Um, where was that going with that? Timon and I just think it's amazing. Um, but there's so much knowledge that I'm fresh out of university, and a lot of the emphasis for research was okay, have you got your citations, have you got the footnotes, but. Eventually, I was like, well, just calling mum to give me some of the answers, and I was working with the thesis as well, a Māori girl. So it's like, oh, hang on a minute. Actually, a lot of the knowledge and the research that we are looking for isn't always in the books, but actually in our own whānau. And so that should be just as valid a way of learning and celebrating um, as me. So, yeah. I had another tangent with that too. Um, so mum and I have always spent a lot of time next to the Hawaii. Um, this Awahia in particular, Awaha, is um, one of the places we've always spent a lot of time. It's freezing. <laughs> yes. Um, and we always like hang out, swim. The water at that time was clean. When I was a kid, it was clean enough that you could dive in and just drink as you're diving and come back mm-hmm. up. And it felt like you had Vicks all over your body because all the blood rushes mm. to the surface mm. and you feel really hot afterwards, yeah. which makes no yeah. sense, but <laughs> that's how cold it is. Um, and even then, that hour is not healthy either. It looks beautiful, mm. but at the biggest puna is still, as you call it, incarcerated, and we've never seen it. Um, and it's still in a big metal box, a big concrete box. Yeah, it's got a fence. It's still fenced off, and it's got a, a very large... Um, um, statement written by the 
regional council mm. um, Rotorua um, and so it would be well, I'm not sure were you born then? Um, you might have <laughs> maybe when I was asked to along with other members of my tribe to um, to provide um, evidence against the regional council in Rotorua to ensure the return of our puna and I called it, I described it down in Wellington when we went down at the national level and we won that case. Um, I described it as being incarcerated, so um, near where that particular part of the puna is, um, you turn around and there's a fence and it's got this big sign saying, you know, um, Rotorua, I think it's a county council and so on, um, da 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 da. And I've never seen my puna. I still had one time now, 60, 65. I stood when I was probably about 30, 35, with people, and I haven't seen it in all my life. I'd really like to see it before I pass. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and the water, massive amount of water comes out of that puna. I'd, I'd think that it's probably about, um, perhaps about that size, but as I say, I've never seen it. And the water just gushes out under the fence line. Um, but when I went home recently to a tummy at Avaho, um, my cousin had passed, um, it's my custom to go straight down to the Awa as soon as I get there, sprinkle myself before I go into the Malai. And there was what I described as rock snot. That's the only term I have. So it's this brown gunge that was right along the length of the um, bank of the Awa where I was. Along with all the um, sea, the lake weed, which you get used to seeing. Um, and there was a tiny, tiny weed. Um, so I'm talking about... Excuse me, darling. Uh, I'm talking about the colour of that, which you'll see. That's this sort of aqua colour, um, blue to green. And there was this tiny little weed spot, which normally I'd see right down below below the weed, um, lake weed. There was probably about that much in the river. And I cried. Mm. I thought, this is not happening. Mm. This can't be happening. We won this case. What on earth is happening? So I haven't had a chance yet to do something about it, although my niece rang up the other day and, um, and she said, oh, fire, um, if it's of it, some help, it's actually indigenous. No, darling, that's not really up there at all. Indigenous rocks, not I don't care. I don't want it there. But she said, and that's basically because the farmers... It's all the pollutants coming off the farms. Yeah. That just drains down off the farms on the, on the hills and it affects our... And, and the other thing is Rotorua, our lake Rotorua has, has had weeds for a very long time. Um, I remember when I was over in the States and um, I went to one of these lakes and I, was, I thought, oh, this is disgusting. Look at the state of this lake. Then I went home to Rotorua and it was like I'd been blind. Mm. I went home to my lake and I thought, what are you talking about? You haven't swum in your lake for years. And yet seeing it over in Europe, I sort of 
felt I had this superior kind of thing of, oh, this isn't happening at home, when actually it was. So it was a really, um, it was a moment in my life where I just thought, what are you saying? You know, we, we get a sort of arrogance about ourselves that we're holier than thou, <laughs> than the others, but actually we can no longer say that in our Tamarwan. Well, I think not just that, if we're looking at decolonisation and that's the topic that we're really working towards, I think we can't do that without working in parallel with the whenua, the mourner as well, mm. and our awa, so yeah. I think it has to go hand in hand. But the beauty of it now is I think so many of us um, are wanting to work together in small groups, um, whether they're funded by local governments or not, people are doing it anyway. And I think that's that's what's really important. And with our young ones learning at home, learning in, in the kōhanga or kindergartens, schools of various um, levels, um, where um, the knowledge is there, and therefore the determination is greater. And, and with that too, I just really want to acknowledge the role you have taken in guiding us with our understanding of Parafenuamea, because if not for you, the work wouldn't be what it is today. The work wouldn't have arrived in this place. We wouldn't have this rich understanding. And it's Aroha's scholarship that's just been so pivotal to the way we've come to understand our relationship with Parafenuamea, and therefore making the, making the work or the artwork has been our learning. It's been our education that you've been able to pass on to us and then share with big groups of people as well. So that role of education that you've taken is manifesting through the through the artwork and through the process of our collaborations as well. So it's been so hugely important and we're really honoured to sit alongside our Maraikura. It's just uh, been a huge, you know, huge honour for us to have the, this opportunity. I think this is a good moment to ask you if you have any questions or comments to share because the time is, is running and mm. we might need to close the event soon and invite you to see the show and spend time with works if you mm. have some time left on this Saturday afternoon. Do you have any questions or proposals, ideas? something maybe um, because uh, these are amazing um, artists and thinkers and uh, it's not just about art and it's not just about reflection it's also about what as you say what might happen next <coughs> and Natalie didn't um, say anything about the fact that um, I don't know how many months ago it was now a few that Graham and Natalie uh, presented to one of the biggest environmental conferences in the country with this part of the video and then Graham stood and talked about what's happening in the local and forests. They had an audience of some of the most influential um, decision makers in the country and a lot of people were crying when they watched the video. Um, they were actually weeping uh, and they're the sort of people that normally hardly show a flicker of emotion because they spend all their time drafting policy and, and doing that kind of thing. And Graham um, spoke in a way that straight from the land. You hardly ever hear that in those conferences. Normally it's people giving papers and, and um, but he actually, I think it was the voice of the Okumana Forest that came and 
and took that conference and had a huge impact on a lot of people. What's going to happen next is going to be really interesting because there are a lot of vested interests that are pushing towards industrial forestry. Um, there are vested interests that you know, don't want to spend money on fixing up rivers. Um, but I believe that with Aroha and with Natalie's work with it, all, all of you, I think that the challenge now is how do we actually, as you say, connect, link, take all these forces and bring them together so that we do get shift in the way people are thinking in this country and that includes down in Wellington um, because a lot of those people normally they never see this stuff they don't, they don't see what's happening to the land they don't hear uh, somebody like Graham just speak from the heart in such a way that people feel absolutely ripped to pieces by it and they don't see that you know, they don't have the chance to see that that drone footage and maybe this is the thing with art your beautiful voice, Aroha, the way that can work with the, the images, but with all the thought that's going behind that, we can take that to the places where decisions are made, change the way people are thinking about the, what they're doing um, in places like Wellington, um, which end up with ravaged landscapes like the ones we're looking at in the exhibition, and just get them to see that this is insane. Um, so, I think the question about what happens next is the one that we're probably all most concerned about. Um, but the force that's mustering is fantastic. I just wanted that to make tribute. Kia ora. And certainly art doesn't change the world directly, but it opens up you know, questions, makes people think. So this is what the work in spaces like Tatui or you know, Sample Street Gallery and other galleries around we are doing this so there is a platform for these ideas to reach others. Uh, that's what we can do. We can't change the world, but we can do that. And, and I can take this opportunity to thank Alex for cutting the, the video together for the Environmental Defence Society oh. under great pressure, <laughs> time pressure. To, I, need a nine minute piece. <laughs> I need a nine minute video by tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it did, it, it didn't have any opportunity. Thank you for that platform and opportunity. So it's one other person who I'm quietly eyeballing the back of the room. What did you think? Thank you. Um, just being really beautiful um, to listen to all the stories and so just want to honour you all for your mahi uh, that you've been doing. Um, just some reflections as I'm sitting there kind of gobbling up all of the matauranga that you've been um, sharing. Uh, it's quite interesting to, I think planet Earth is in an interesting um, position at the moment, especially with the environmental disasters that are happening all over the world and um, it seems to be a particular voice that is speaking out at this time, it's the indigenous voice, whether you're at Roman Care or um, you're in West Papua or you're over in Turtle Island, it does, it's just all these voices that are popping up, it seems to be an indigenous one and um, there's a whole lot of people um, 
kind of like yourselves that um, can hear the voices and then become like a megaphone. And so actually I think art does change the world because it becomes like a megaphone because it's a little still voice that needs to be heard and then comes out in a particular way and so it's either visual or, or comes, comes in many different forms. Um, interesting kaupapa around healing the land, um, healing the waters, what does that mean? Uh, seems to be quite complicated and I get quite overwhelmed and uh, I start to kind of you know, think negatively <laughs> about how is this ever going to work but actually when I sit and listen to stories like this I get inspired and I be encouraged whether it's through social media to have a voice or whatever but um, particularly in terms of when I look at those images or those videos, um, we see the ao kiko kiko, you know, we see the physical world, we see the, the, the world of flesh, and um, it's quite painful to look at some of those images and it provokes a whole lot of um, feelings, but um, also if we have the lenses to look into te ao and you put your spiritual glasses on, it's like, what would you see? In those pictures, if you look at it from a different angle, what would you see in the spiritual? What's going on? Where are the pockets of light and where are the pockets of darkness? Um, where are the pockets of different colors for those that are seers that can see into the spiritual? Um, you know, what are those? What are those smells? What are those? What do they smell like when you're actually standing there, um, recording those images? You know, with the drones or whatever. Um, you know, and even in the, in the spiritual, there are these smells that you can pick up on. And, um, yeah, those are the things I kind of just want to plant some seeds. or um, Because I think, you know, um, the indigenous world, um, for the ones that know the story of the land, they have the expertise. Like, you know, when you talk about Graham, like, I'm just so inspired by Graham. You know, in the way he talks and the way he thinks. And it's almost like he can just touch a rock. And know the whole fucker pop of that rock. You know? <laughs> like he's that kind of person. Or he puts his hand in the water and he can tell you the whole history of that water because he can. It's almost like that's his gifting, you know. And um, so we've got to listen to people like Graham, but then there's also like within the sciences and stuff. There's also things that we can learn there, maybe. Um, you know, how do we fuck a water or how do we clear out a space um, in order that it can start to regenerate life once again? Because it's got bleached, so I think there's like a spiritual element going on, there's also a physical, and those two got to go hand in hand. Uh, I think Te Pākehā and Te Māori kind of got to work together, but one voice has been really dominant, and has, you can kind of see the destruction and the disconnection from the land, from people. Um, what does it look like to kind of work in partnership? I'm not offering any solutions. I'm just offering things out as I've been sitting here listening to you all, sharing your mato I'm going, wow, this is kind of sparking up some things for me. Um, yeah, how do we remember those old stories? Like as you're learning how to weave or the, 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 the tāniko or whatever it is, you know, um, I think those things need to kind of be treated as tapu, but they also need to be put on a megaphone as well. Because I think about Papa Boise and, you know, like it's when he passes away, how much knowledge that needs to be handed on to the next generation. I've just finished doing my assignment on um, Apina Nagata and the amount of stories and stuff. So I'm so thankful. He recorded a whole lot of things down about
about the way of food and everything that happened there. Um, and he was managed to have this balance of the um, the old ways, the ancient ways, but also the new way, which was in Park and, and hold them together. And I didn't realise that he was friends with Ernest Rutherford, you know. But you know, if you have these powers combined, what could actually happen in, two, in 2019 and beyond in the 21st century Aotearoa? Um, so although it seems like doom and gloom, I think there's hope in there somewhere. But yeah, once again, thank you so much. <laughs> I didn't really know what to say. It just came out there. But um, yeah, no way I I had lots of responses, but with my Alzheimer's, I can only think of one or two things really. But um, it was really powerful what you you said, and so very true. Um, and what I want to acknowledge in that is, is something we talked... Oh, now I can't remember that part, sorry. Um, but in terms of um, something that you said resonated with me because absolutely every time I go to the Waikato River now on which going into town to Kirikirirua, ka mihi o ki ngā wai. Ka mihi o ki ngā wai. And it's kind of like a mihi, but it's also a karakia. Yes. And it's exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I'm sending positive messages. I'm greeting the way, acknowledging that this is our way of our, of our tūpuna. I don't need to have that much time, right? So it's really, really quick. It's just... <laughs> it's <a fast laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and if I don't get enough time to say everything I want to say, I'll, I'll repeat it or do something different on the way. But every time I go across the Waikato River, which is often once a day, at least once a day, once a day, I'll mihi the way. Because, and I send those positive um, affirmations from the way, from the maunga to the, the mōna and out. Yeah. And I think, um, and likewise, when I go and, and not only just under um, our maunga, taupiri, but other maunga, ka mihi au ki ngā hai maunga, and it's, every time I come down to Rotorua, ka mihi au ki ngā maunga whakahi o te kāinga nei, me ngā wai o Rotorua nui a um, te Rotorua nui a, a kahu matamumoi, rere atu rei ko te moana nui a kiwa, tēnā koto. So it's, it's sending those, it's all encapsulated in just one sentence. But you know, you're, it's a positive um, thought that you're an intention. And if every one of us were to do that, mm. we can change this world. Yeah. We totally can change it mm. at a vibrational level. It's, it's at so many levels. And I, I just want to just add to the power of Wananga because mm. it was Wananga at Teacup of this year that brought Jenny Fernandez, who's here, Matt. Both to Marae for the first time. Jamie's come, coming back to tea cup already, Jamie. <laughs> so, you know, our tea cup of are, are, are gathering as we, uh, and I have to acknowledge here Lionel Martinga, who is the carver of our uh, new whakairo that are on the front of our whare pōkai. Through that act of making, uh, bringing our new tipuna, bringing our old tipuna into new form and putting them, uh, revitalising pōkai, our whare, we're being revitalised through that. Mm-hmm. We're being revitalised through those rākau that were gifted to us by Tūwhare Toa. Those <coughs> rākau tōtara, our relationship with Tūwhare Toa and Rokau were taken very seriously now. Our relationship is now forever because of that 
that Tāonga that have been gifted to us from those Rako to bring all the way over to Pōkai. And that brought us all together. We had Wailanga in January on Whakapapa and Whenua, and we walked. The very first thing we did was we went to our Pōnawai that so badly needs our, our healing, but through our kōrero, through Wailanga, we are already beginning the process of the healing. And, you know, we've stood there and said, right, what's next? And our first, you know, it's like, what is the next thing we do? And we've been to, to uh, Tirimu, to the to the puna there and seeing the, um, the healthy puna, you know, a really fine example, it's a healthy puna right there, and right, right, well this is our example, now let's repeat that healthy representation, let's repeat that, those processes of returning and changing our relationship to farming and agriculture and returning to our old ways. I think these are things that we can do through Wānanga and through and through hui like this. The art creates opportunity to hui. And so Kyura Gabriella for creating these opportunities for us and Harani as Amazing. well. Amazing. Having you here, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for, for being with us today. Thank you. Centre Graham's voice is the person who lives there, and it's we've used a lot of his words in that. So you'll see when you go there that the centre, uh, the centre channel is really uh, things that he said, and we've learnt so much. And so we also want to just send a little applause on our recorder to Graham. Kia ora, Graham. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Good